But I've been watching the news and, and watching specials on like, you know, Discovery and History Channel and Learning Channel about how in the future, and already we're experiencing it, how fresh water is going to become more valuable than oil or a lot of other things that we associate with value right now. We take fresh water for granted. But already, because, you know, there are so many uh, places in the desert where they've, uh, you know, Las Vegas and other places where uh, they've just expanded. Uh, people are moving out like crazy out there, and there's just not enough water, you know? What is it like? What will it be like to, to live always worrying about having enough fresh water to drink for you and your family? I'm going to make a little confession here. I'm hooked on a particular show on Discovery Channel. It's called Man vs. Wild. Man versus Wild, okay, this guy, his name is Bear Grylls. What a name. It sounds manly. Bear Grylls. He was involved with a young guy, involved with British Special Forces, you know, climbed to the top of Everest. One of those adventurous guys, and he's a survivalist. And so what they do is they, they find a place in the world that's pretty tough, and he parachutes out of a helicopter, and just with a knife and a, and a canteen, and, and he lands in, you know, a jungle or, you know, someplace uh, where, you know, it's all snow maybe. Or I seen one episode where he, he, was, he uh, parachuted down into uh, Africa. And, of course, one of the first things you have, especially if it's a hot climate and dry, the first thing you have to try to find is water. Now, I was going to give you a couple examples of some of the stuff he's drunk before, and I thought... Tomorrow's Thanksgiving. I really do not want to spoil your appetites. But he said in survival situations, you'll drink a lot of things you'd never drink otherwise. And I thought, you know, Lord, what if the day ever came when that was us here? Scrounging around for water, you know? Forget about the iPods and all the other stuff we think are so important, all the little toys and things. And, and we're talking about the set, we're talking about survival. These folks are going to be in a situation where they're surviving, you know. Now, since we just saw what probably is an asteroid or a, media, a meteorite hitting the earth in the last trumpet judgment, uh, it leads me to believe that this is not another meteorite or asteroid. It's something different. This star could very well be some kind of angelic being named Wormwood that supernaturally strikes the earth's fresh water, making it uh, bitter or poison. We know that in Revelation 12, angels are referred to as the stars of heaven. So it could be some kind of a supernatural being who strikes uh, the fresh water supply of the earth. I don't see any reason why it couldn't be something nuclear, possibly. Some kind of nuclear explosion that, that um, happens above the earth uh, and poisons the fresh water supply. Uh, do you know what 
the Russian word for wormwood is? You ready? Chernobyl. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Chernobyl catastrophe was a fulfillment of this passage, but it's interesting to think about, you know, Chernobyl, radiation, waters made bitter, so on. We don't know what's going to happen. Verse 12. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Now the fourth angel sounds, and the focus of divine judgment shifts from the earth to the heavens. One author said this, he said, Still reeling from the effects of the first three ecological judgments, people will be desperately seeking answers to the crisis. There will no doubt be seminars, conferences, emergency sessions of the United Nations. Oh, won't that be great? We're all so thankful for the United Nations and how they solve all our problems. Emergency sessions of the United Nations discussing uh, among science, discussions among scientists, all desperately but futilely trying to cope with the damage to the Earth's ecosystems. In the midst of all that frenzied activity comes a new disaster in the sky as a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were, were struck or smitten. In fact, the Greek word there is a word that means uh, the same word we got our word plague from. So this is something God is doing. God strikes the sun, the moon, the stars. Of course, the, the light of the moon and star, um, the light of the moon, I should say, is reflected off of our uh, reflection of our sun. So we can understand that. But God does something to lessen either the length of day or the brightness of the sun, moon, and stars. Let's look at this for a moment. Turn to uh, Luke chapter 21. And let's read verses 25 and 6. In Luke 21, Jesus Christ is talking to his disciples about the very period of time we're studying. Luke 21 is a briefing of the 70th week of Daniel or the seven-year tribulation period. And he says in verse 25, And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and waves roaring. Perplexity, there's a Greek word that means no way out, no solution, all right? The earth has come to such a crisis point that its best scientists, and who have people placed their faith in today for the most part? The Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty, no. Science, scientists, you know, in my devotions, I've been reading Jeremiah. It's a heavy book to read for your devotions, but it parallels a lot of what's going on, going to be going on soon on the earth. And um, during Israel's history, how they had turned their backs on God, and God tried to get their attention. He sent prophet after prophet, which they, uh, which they, um, they beat up and they stoned and killed and all, and they would not turn back to God. And God kept warning them, please turn back to me. If you don't, I will have no other recourse but to judge you, and I don't want to do that. Please turn to me. Forsake these idols. Forsake all this stuff. But the people would not until God began to bring judgment then. And as he began to bring judgment, the people began to cry out to God. And God said to Jeremiah, you go tell the people to cry out to the idols they love so much. Tell them to cry out to their gods, the ones that they love so much, that they've been burning incense to and 
sacrificing their children to, and all these idols which are just demons, really, you go ahead and tell them to cry out to those things because I'm not going to listen to them anymore. The day of grace is over with. I've given them an opportunity. Years and years I've waited for them to turn, and they, they have not done it. Now the day has come for judgment. And the same is true with the earth. In, I mean, that was Israel back then. We're talking about now judgment on a worldwide scale. And Jesus said that as God begins to pour these judgments out upon the earth, there's going to be perplexity. There's going to be panic. There's going to be a sense of hopelessness and despair because there's no answers. There's no solution. Verse 26, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. The word powers there in the Greek is dunamis. We get our word dynamite from that word. Heaven is uranos. We get our word uranium from that word. And will be shaken literally means to be set off balance. Now, with that in mind, turn to Isaiah 13. Isaiah is talking about the very same period. In verse 9 of Isaiah 13, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than, a, than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. What are we talking about here? We're talking about God messing with the rotation of the earth, the tilt of the earth. Turn to uh, Isaiah 24, verse 19. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgressions shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. Now, is that figurative language or is it literal? Is the earth going to somehow fall from its 23 and a half degree tilt to something that, you know, is more horizontal? I don't know. In verse 12 of Revelation chapter 8, again, John says, when this angel sounded, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Now, does this mean that the brightness of the sun, moon, and stars is reduced by one-third its intensity? Could be. As I was doing study in this, I, a lot of commentators believe that's what is going to happen. Uh, somehow God is going to, you know, turn down the, uh, uh, I don't know, the inner workings of these stars and things, and uh, the furnace is going to be kicked back, you know, the, the brightness and the heat kick back a third if that's what happens it's only temporary because in chapter 16 verse 8 and 9 it says the sun is all of a sudden going to become very bright and hot to the point where it begins to scorch people on the earth people are worried about global warming they ought to worry and it's not because of carbon emissions it's because of sin 
God's going to really kick the temperature up. Or, and, and I lean more towards this one, or do these cataclysmic judgments change the earth's rotation in some way so that a typical 24-hour day be, will be changed into a 16-hour day? Or the earth's tilt will somehow be affected, which would affect the length of days and so on. And we read about that in Isaiah 24. Uh, I think it's interesting, and I, in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, I found this verse. I think it corroborates what we're talking about. It says in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, and again, all these passages and these prophets are talking about the same period of time. So as we compare them together, we get an idea uh, more fully of what's going to be happening. But in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, uh, God said, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Now, he doesn't say, I'm going to turn off the lights. He says, I'm going to make the sun go down. The sun doesn't really go down, but the earth rotates and makes it look like it's going down, right? So in that regard, it sounds to me like God could be doing something with the actual rotation of the earth so that we have a 16-hour day instead of a 24-hour day. And could that be in part what Jesus meant when he said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would remain upon the earth? Well, Revelation 8, verse 13. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. I can almost hear Rocky Balboa saying that. Woe, woe. No, I don't know why. Some things just hit me that way. No, it won't be funny, believe me. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. At this point, something remarkable happens. Your new King James says an angel starts flying through the heavens, declaring to the earth, if you think things are bad now, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's got to uplift everybody on the earth, right? Now, most of the translations say an eagle. Some of them say an angel. Let's bring them together and say possibly one of the four living creatures that John saw around the throne with the face of an eagle. Maybe God sends that particular angel on a mission. We don't know. Could be. We're not sure. But again, these three woes, and a woe uh, in the scriptures is a judgment. Remember in Isaiah 5, the last Sunday, God pronounced six woes upon Israel for their sin. Uh, six areas he was going to have to judge them. And he called them woes. They're woe judgments. Same thing here. These three woes refer to the judgments that are yet remaining that the last three angels, when they blow the trumpets, are going to come upon the earth. Um, the phrase, the inhabitants of the earth, is literally uh, them that dwell on the earth. Uh, the phrase, them that dwell on the earth or earth dwellers, appears 12 times in the book of Revelation. It means much more than people who live on the earth because all of us who are people and alive live on the earth. It really isn't talking about where they live as much as what kind of people they are. They are those who live for the earth and the things of the earth is the idea. In contrast to those who are Christians who have their citizenship in heaven. We are sojourners and pilgrims. 
The earth is not our home. We live here, but we don't dwell here in the sense that, you know, it's all about this life. It's, it, for me, it's all about right now. A lot of people live that way. John said, look, don't love the things of this world because this world is rapidly passing away. And those that love the world and the things of the world, they don't really have the love of the Father in them. They're earth dwellers. In fact, we find out later on in Revelation 13, verse 8, that earth dwellers is a term that always, always in Revelation relates to unbelievers. Those who, this is their home. This is where their kingdom is. They are living for this life only. And so, you know, as we read this, and it's because I've been engrossed in this study, reading commentary after commentary and listening to tape after tape of people either expounding this book or reading what others have written about this time, you can't throw yourself or immerse yourself into something like this and not have it really affect you. I mean, we know from what we've already studied that we won't be here for this. The church is going to be out of here before the judgment of God falls because we don't have to be punished with the wicked. Peter says God will not punish the righteous with the wicked. Paul said God has not appointed us to wrath but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're out of here. And so for that we can be very thankful, right? Remember I promised you by the time you were done, we were done tonight you'd be thankful. Maybe thankful for some of the simple things that you take for granted right now. You know, it's a little trite, but it's really true. The most important things in life are the things that money can't buy. Family, friends, your relationship with God. That's what we really need to be thankful for. Now, of course, as we come to chapter 9, we've already seen Jesus breaking the, the six seals on the scroll, which each seal when it was broken, unleashed a certain judgment upon the earth. And then we came to the seventh seal, and that unleashed the seven trumpet judgments. Uh, the first four trumpet judgments were really uh, poured out on the physical earth, I mean, just the physical realm. Judgment upon the vegetation, upon the oceans and seas, then upon the fresh water. Then finally, uh, the sun, the moon, the stars were struck so that they didn't shine by a third. And uh, so we saw that last time. These judgments kind of uh, directed at the earth, judgments that God could have used natural things in supernatural ways. Now, as we come to the fifth and sixth trumpet, we move really from the natural realm to the supernatural realm. The fifth and sixth trumpets are going to unleash upon the inhabitants of the earth demonic judgments so horrific that honestly it's going to be hard for us to comprehend what it's going to be like for people living on the earth at that time. I mean, the first four trumpets were really kind of directed at nature. Man was only affected indirectly. The last two are going to be supernatural judgments, but directed at man specifically. And we're going to see the toll that they take. I want you just to remember this, though, that Jesus said to his church, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. We know that the church is to be the moral conscience of the world. The church is to be a preserving influence for good. 
We know that the Holy Spirit working through the church is retarding or restraining evil from running wild. But when the rapture happens and the church is removed, uh, the Holy Spirit working in the church, the Holy Spirit's going to be here, working very hard in the tribulation period to bring probably millions of people to Christ. As we already said, more people are going to get saved during the seven-year period than probably have gotten saved in 2,000 years of church history. And I, I don't think I'm overstating that. It's going to be a time of judgment, but a time of great mercy. Uh, wasn't it in Habakkuk, I think it says, where the prophet said, uh, Lord, in judgment, remember mercy. That's what it's going, to, it's going to be. Yes, God is going to be judging the world, but he's going to be showing mercy to anybody who wants to receive Christ. But remember, the church is gone now. There is nothing to restrain the evil in the world. And the world is going to begin to self-destruct. It's going to begin to decay uh, morally, spiritually, and even physically as the body counts pile up. And you're going to see people, so many people dying during this time that it's uh, going to be hard to imagine. So the last three trumpets, remember we ended chapter 8, where an angel said, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants upon the earth for the final three trumpets which are coming, which are the three judgments that are yet to come. Uh, indicating by God calling them woes that they were particularly horrific and, and terrible, these next three judgments. And so in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, then, then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. John said, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. This is not another meteor or an asteroid falling to the earth because personality is, is ascribed to this star by use of the personal pronoun him. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. We know that angels in the scriptures are sometimes referred to as stars. In Job 38, we read how that when God laid the foundations of the earth, the stars in heaven sang the Angels, they sang and they shouted for joy. Uh, so in Job 38, angels are likened to stars. We know that this one falls from heaven to the earth. In fact, the Greek in verse 1 is actually has fallen. So John is really saying, I saw a star that had fallen to the earth. I believe this is none other than Satan himself. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 18? He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Turn to Isaiah 14. Let's look at this angel, this star, Lucifer, whose name actually means light bearer. Lucifer means light bearer. In Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse 12, it says, How you are fallen... From heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you said, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. The five I wills of the devil that caused him to fall. Lucifer, and we learn this from uh, Ezekiel 28. Those are the two 
classic chapters in the Old Testament that deal with the devil. We get a glimpse of what happened before, you know, uh, man was on the earth and all. Uh, in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, uh, we, we learn, though, that Lucifer was originally created by God to be the top angel in heaven above all the others. He was the anointed cherub that covers, Ezekiel tells us. What does that mean? He was the top guy. He was in charge of all the other angels. He was the worship leader of heaven. He was perfect in wisdom and beauty, uh, in beauty until iniquity was found in him, and the iniquity was pride. He wasn't content being number two under the, under the Trinity. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be God. The same desire and lie he infected the human race with. Go ahead and eat the forbidden fruit, Eve. God knows that in the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you'll be like him. You'll be like, a, you'll be like God. So the five eye wills of Satan that caused him to fall. Verse 15. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day. day, by day.